0: I'm Mike Wilkerson from twoguystalking.com, and you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to the Animal Academy podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Animal Academy Podcast. My guest tonight is Pat Caston, longtime animal lover and trainer As a child, she was called the Animal Whisperer because of her ability to connect and bond with them. During this episode, we will discuss her interesting life with animals and some of the adventures she experienced. When I first met Pat, I was in my 20s, many, many years ago. I had been training my Shelties in obedience, then was told to try out Pat's advanced obedience classes. We had such a good time in class, which is what kept me interested in obedience. Then I suddenly lost my young Sheltie to cancer at the age of five, and was mysteriously invited to a puppy party. Well, I found out soon that Pat and some other friends orchestrated my attendance at the party, and yes, I ended up with my first Golden Retriever puppy. That pushed my life in a whole different direction. I'm excited to introduce my guest, Pat Caston. Besides having a gift with animals, Pat is a genuinely caring and funny person. So I am really looking forward to talking to Pat tonight. Pat, welcome to this episode of the podcast. Hi, Allison. I've been looking forward to this interview and know the audience will enjoy hearing what you have to share.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Allison. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I'm sure we're going to have some laughs tonight. Oh, yeah. But I also promise, since I've known you for a very long time, to not share any secrets so no worries okay (laughs) fine (laughs) all right so pat as a young child you said you always loved animals in fact they called you the animal whisperer what are some early memories of your connection with animals little baby
2: squirrel fell out of the tree hit my grandpa's car broke its leg and so grandpa and i went out of course and i'm like oh my gosh we got to help it So we put on some gloves, and we taped its leg, and put some popsicle sticks and tape, and of course I had a crate. So we put it in the crate, left it outside underneath the shrubbery, and I would feed it and water it every day, and she became known as Whiskers. How cute. Yes, and uh, she became very tame. I worked with her every day, trying to just would sit there by the crate and just talk to her and give her food. And all of a sudden, she's eating out of my hand, and she stayed around the home until we moved from Decatur, Illinois to St. Louis. What an awesome story. Yeah. Do you remember how old you were? Oh, my. Um, I was probably 10 years old.
1: Now, did you have any other animals at that time?
2: I had a mixed breed. She was a shepherd collie mixed, and she looked like a
1: smooth collie, and her name, of
2: course, was Lassie oh how cute <laughs> of
1: course <laughs> so what got you started in a dog obedience
2: my backdoor neighbor Heine layman she was an akc judge and obedience instructor with the decatur obedience group hmm. and i would always look through the fence and just watch and watch and watch her train her dogs so about eight years old i was um she said, well, come on over to my yard. I'm going to teach you how to do this. So she had a German shepherd and a golden. And, of course, my mother wasn't too, you know, happy with this because she's scared to death of German shepherds. But anyway, I was the only one of the kids around the neighborhood that really could go into the yard and do anything I wanted to because of the shepherd, of course, scared everybody off. But Mm -hmm. her name was Haida. We became great pals. But that's how I started in obedience. And she would take me to the obedience classes in Decatur. And I would train my little mixed breed and help some of the older people with their dogs and train them and help them with theirs. So...
1: What a great start. I mean, that was really lucky to find an obedience trainer. Oh, yeah. And an American Kennel Club judge.
2: Yes. I was known as Patty to everybody, the official post. So when (laughs) she would take me to the local shows, and I would be a post for the figure eight, and I would go out and put the articles out, and they had a seek back years ago where you had to drop a glove And uh, the person would be healing around the ring with their dog, and I would go set it down someplace and disappear, and uh, the dog would have to seek back and get the glove. And so I was her official little ring steward from little on. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and in a previous podcast, I talked to Sandy Gans about what obedience training is and that it really involves some very, very precision work that you have to start from the ground up basically right
2: definitely definitely I start with puppies eight weeks old as soon as I get them teaching them manners of first of all no bite it's just continuous over and over and over repeat 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 and praise but yes to instill the basics of no bite and sit and come those are the basics And then you can go on from there for the healing and all the other obedience parts. But no bite is one of the big ones.
1: (laughs) Well, and I remember taking a dog to, or puppy, to one of your puppy classes. And, you know, socialization is so important for those puppies, right?
2: Oh, definitely, definitely. We used to play pass the puppy. What is that? We would sit down in a big circle, and everybody had their puppies in front of them. And we would pet them, and then we'd pass the puppy to the left. And the next person would pet them and give them a little treat to socialize and get them used to other people handling them also mm. and making them sit. Mm-hmm. They had to sit quietly. Then we'd pass the puppy to the next person and go around in the circle. And then, of course, we had other puppy things that we did with them. But to look, to teach those puppies to respond to the owners with a lot of puppies around, you know. So mm-hmm. it's real important for them to get socialized that way.
1: So I can only imagine getting a puppy to sit when they're really not used to having any kind of training. That must be pretty hard.
2: It is. It is. But luring with a treat and a hand on the rear, you know, just kind of pulling up on the collar with the mm-hmm. and have a treat in that hand and pushing the rear down and telling them to sit and just gently stroking them on the sit. Good sit. Good sit. And they do it. All of a sudden, you just see the light bulbs come on.
1: So did you ever have kids in
2: your puppy class? Yes, I did. I was one of the few trainers that accepted children. Sometimes it was difficult, and Mm -hmm. I'd have to talk to the parents about, look, I'm going to be a little bit more firmer with them to make them understand that they have to listen to me. And it's just a tone of voice that you had to use with them, but I really loved working with children to get them to connect with their puppies because mm-hmm. the thing is, is the dog is going to be an alpha, try to be the alpha. And mm-hmm. they have to respect the totem pole, as I call it. They're at the bottom. The ones that they pick on, the puppies that they pick on is the children. Mm-hmm. And so they're always going after the little ones. And so the little ones have to learn how to control that puppy also.
1: Mm-hmm. I've sometimes heard that kids can be seen, from a puppy's perspective, as just another litter mate.
2: Yes, definitely, because they love to scream and run, and that's not prohibited at all. (laughs) Not in my books. Uh My grandchildren know when they come over, there's no running down the halls. There's no screaming and stuff, and they understand now to say, no, sit. Okay. No, off, because... It causes a chase game when they run around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, of course, you have to work with both because <laughs> mm-hmm. the kids, you know, they're they're small, they're little. Uh, my oldest is three years old. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he loves to run. But Grandma gets his arm and says, there's no running. Mm-hmm. And so he's understood when Grandma says, uh-uh, he mm-hmm. goes, oh. And the dogs go, oh, <laughs> at the same time because they know that, uh-uh.
1: That is... I've used all of my life with animals. That must be a universal sign, Ah, ah, that sound.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you have to say it firmly, too. (laughs) Right, right.
1: So I would think, too, having kids as part of the obedience training, especially in a puppy class, will also teach them. How important it is to reinforce the right things.
2: Yes, yes and it creates a bond then too and they're so proud of their dog sat and their dog came when they called Mm -hmm. them and it's just a great feeling to and to see the children love working with their dogs then and the dog responding to them because then it makes a happy household.
1: It's a huge sense of accomplishment. Yes,
2: it is. And we used to have graduation certificates, Uh and so they would get her certificate also. And they really worked hard to get that certificate to pass that class.
1: I remember some of those days, too, when I was young. And I remember I was about seven or eight years old, and I could not – I had a mixed breed that was about a German Shepherd size, and we also had a young Sheltie and the larger dog was mine but my mom ended up training the larger dog and i trained the shorter you know the sheltie only because of size but i just felt this sense of that's my dog that my mom's training yeah <laughs> but it was this big deal when i got that certificate at the end of class
2: yes it really means a lot not just to children but to adults also mm-hmm. because i mean we'd have a graduation and we just kind of ran them through uh, healing and this you know, sit stays and down stays and recalls. And and if the dog did it, I mean, they got their certificate that they mm-hmm. graduated from that class. And then um, a lot of people, because the dogs did so well and they enjoyed the class so much, they wanted to go to the next class. Mm-hmm. And it just got them interested in training the dogs to the di- different levels that we had in our obedience school.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I remembered some some really good stories and had a lot of good um, friends that developed out of obedience class. And I remember several people from your class would go on to the more advanced classes, and then we just continue to train our dogs together.
2: My best friends are from dogs. I mean, they just I've it's I've met so many wonderful people throughout the years, and we've stayed in contact. And some of them we haven't talked to, but all of a sudden, soon as we see each other, it's like longtime friends that you just start up again, you know, mm-hmm. and it and it's a wonderful community. It
1: really is. At the very beginning of this podcast, I talked about the fact that I was pretty much set up for my first Golden Retriever puppy. I remember that. <laughs> yes, and, you uh, were. <laughs> and, you know, I showed up at a puppy party and didn't know that I was going to go home with one uh... of the puppies. That developed a whole, you know, uh, I don't know what to even say. It was a uh, So many good friends developed out of that one puppy party because that started puppy training. Yes. And then that led to confirmation class and then agility class and obedience class. And we all traveled together. And, again, that kind of goes back to how important that, I don't know, the dog community is.
2: Yeah. It's a really close-knit group. We have our own goals, but everybody's cheering each other on and it's like if you fail they're you know sad with you you Mm -hmm. qualify or you place they're happy with you and it's it's just a good group of people because we have that mutual bond as our dogs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: well and you had your own obedience training business for many years tell me more about that
2: i used to train with a local club and I was a instructor, and I just got tired of being shot down all the time in their rigid training, and I didn't believe in that. So I decided, heck, I'm going to go out on my own. So mm-hmm. I contacted a lot of the vets around the area and groomers, told them who I was, what I intended to do. I first started out in the parks. Well, that didn't mm-hmm. work out too well because all the kids playing and different mm-hmm. things. So... Years ago, well, I finished my basement off. I had matting all around. I had classes three nights a week with 10 people at the max, and I had a puppy class at a groomer's shop. Mm -hmm. I eventually outgrew that, and uh, some of the neighbors started complaining, too, because of all the traffic up and Mm -hmm. down the street. So I found a closed school that was still open for their school lunches, that they made the school lunches, and they bust out and then the upstairs was more for teaching the um, disabled children and Mm -hmm. everything uh, adults more or less on Mm -hmm. how to be workers in the hospital and different things like that Mm -hmm. so they rented out the gymnasium to me so I fixed that all up matted it had mirrors on the wall and that's where Sharoba Obedience School started and we Mm -hmm. went by SOS for help Mm -hmm. and so I then eventually trained four nights a week And I had a day class also. Then we also had fun matches for everybody to come to once a month. So we had a ring set up just like a AKC dog show. And they could Mm -hmm.
1: practice in the ring. It kind of tests you before you actually enter a formal dog show. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. Yes. It
2: it really helps because of all the distractions and everything going Mm -hmm. around, just like a dog show would be. Mm -hmm. So people could come and practice and work with their dogs that way.
1: So the people that are actually interested in obedience and, you know, any kind of competition, it's good to have these kind of um, set up kind of practice sessions, you know, because then you've got nerves when you're, you've entered a, a trial. Most or a show. definitely. It's like, yeah. oh, this helps you kind of know where you need to work on.
2: Right, right. It shows you all the, like you said, where you need to work on. And, of course, that can always change at the drop of a hat, mm-hmm. but it gives you a basic idea of where your dog's at.
1: Mm-hmm. In the past, you've done a lot of puppy testing. So we talked about obedience training and we talked about puppy classes. But even prior to that, when somebody is picking out a puppy from a breeder, a lot of the breeders will actually do puppy testing or have that done on their litters. Could you explain to the audience what you mean by puppy testing?
2: Yes, there's several different steps that we go through with the puppies. Of course, the the breeder knows... What type of families want what type of dogs, or if they want an obedience home, agility home, just a pet home. And they know if they have children or if they're single or whatever. But these tests go, they're graded, and there's, several, there's about 12 different little tests that we go through. One might be comes willingly, mm-hmm. the, where a person brings a puppy in, just sets it down, and I'm kneeling on the floor. And to see if it comes willingly to me without mm-hmm. being, a, you know, having any sound whatsoever. And then I might get up and I'll walk around and see if the puppy follows me or if he's more independent and wants to venture off someplace and not pay any attention to me. We do these testings in an area that the puppies have never been in, so they're unfamiliar with the area so Mm -hmm. they go over and check this check that out but will they come back to me and follow me around we do Mm -hmm. chase instincts to see if they have any prey drive in them Mm -hmm. like an evaluation of picking them up underneath their belly and letting them just kind of dangle to see Mm -hmm. if they're stiff or if they're very loose to see if they're relaxed Mm -hmm. we do a little toe pinch it's called pain tolerance and we count to 10. Well, if they have, if they flinch by the time, and I just kind of pinch in between the toe and the webbing. and So it doesn't hurt it them. It doesn't hurt them at all. It's just uncomfortable. And if they flinch maybe at the count of two or three, oh, that's good. That means they're not going to need a heavy correction to do what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. When they're up to 10, And I'm going to say, ooh, he's very dominant and stubborn. So you're going to have a little bit more problem of maybe being a little bit more firmer, training the puppy than normal, Mm -hmm. not mean or anything. But you might need a heavier little correction, say, on the collar or something, you know, Mm -hmm. to get through to this dog because he says, "Uh -uh." Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh-uh. There's certain different tests, and this tells the breeder then, What type of home this puppy needs to go to? Because then we'll sit down and evaluate the the grading level as we go through. And I say, hmm, he's got a lot of spunk and energy. Please don't put him with a family with a lot of children, little ones. Mm -hmm. Because the more energy the puppy has and the smaller the children are, then the parents are just going to have a fit of raising both of them. You want more, maybe, of a little bit more laid-back puppy, you know, that's just not as rambunctious. Now, if that puppy is really willing, forgives easy, retrieves, follows you everything, and just watching you, that's a great dog for obedience or agility, field home, you know, going for field work. Mm-hmm. You want a dog with a lot of drive and rambunctious, and that that's a good dog for you know, your obedience or any of your working breed,
1: you know. (laughs) Yeah. We were talking about, in a previous podcast, instincts. So we're, you know, doing a lot with looking at the puppy's instincts and then placing them with, and I was thinking about retrieving, with a home that wants to do some kind of work that involves their instincts.
2: Oh, yes. My Goldens I get from breeders that have working dogs, that have field dogs. It's just bred into them. I always clip a wing from a bird, um, like we uh, a duck, you know, that we have killed in a hunt test or something, you know. And I'll see if that puppy retrieves that wing and how it runs with it and if it comes back to me or whatever, mm-hmm. or if it's real mouthy or things like that. Of course puppies are going to be mouthy, but, you know, you can tell if they have a hard mouth which does not want to release that wing. Mm-hmm. I would kind of like a softer-mouthed dog for my field work mm-hmm. where I can have it release it. But it's trainable. It's all trainable. Your working breeds, your obedience breeds and everything, it's just um, you can tell from the litters that they have more retrieving instincts. They have more watch me, watch me, you know, and and they're right there bonding with you. And, yes, you're going to get independent ones too. So, I mean, you know. Uh, You just have to place them in the right home.
1: So that's an important thing right there, Pat, is place them in the right home. Because if a puppy buyer comes in and sees maybe 12 Golden Retriever puppies, Labrador Retriever, whatever the breed is, they may say, I want that one and point to one. But the breeder lives with these puppies. Each one of those puppies, although they may look similar, they're actually, they have, uh, they're very distinct personalities and temperaments. Oh,
2: yes, yes. And... Most of the time, the breeder will pick out the puppy for the owner. And I approve of that because they live with them day in and day out, and they know it. A friend of mine just did have a litter, and she can tell you what this one does every day and how this one is and what kind of temperament this one is and how outgoing this one is. And she's really done some really good work on placing them in the right homes.
1: So it's good to get that good start, the baseline of what the puppy's temperament is. Yes. And then after the puppy goes home, how important is it to socialize that puppy?
2: Oh, from right away. Right away. I'm not saying take it out to any of the stores or anything right away unless it's already had its two shots, at least, and mm-hmm. a bordetella. I hate seeing people bring in those puppies to PetSmart and Petco and everything, and they're just babies. Mm -hmm. And there's so many viruses and different things that they can pick up. But as long as they've had two puppy shots in them, yes, you can take them out. But I take mine everywhere possible. I go out to the parks where the kids are playing. You know, I walk them down the street, and my neighbors want to pet him. Yes, I let them pet him and everything. Mm -hmm. But it is. It's it's good to find a good puppy class to go to uh, for that socialization also because then they do learn to work with the owners without, all you know, with the distractions going on.
1: And also when we talked about involving uh, kids in the puppy training, it's also important to involve them in your lifestyle. So a puppy isn't just a puppy to then come home and be crated or to be left away from the family, it's important to have that animal as part of the family.
2: Definitely, definitely. I always tell families, put the puppy on a leash. Uh, They're like a baby. You don't leave them in a room unattended at all because they get into things, they potty, they chew on things, and it's your own fault. I mean, it's not the puppy's fault. People blame the dogs on everything. No, it's the person's fault because you haven't properly taken care of him, watched him. Keep that puppy in with you when you're in the front room watching TV on a leash. You know where he's at. When he chooses choose on the leash, well, then you just tell him no. You might take it out of his mouth. Tell him no bite, you know. No bite or no chew or whatever you want. But they learn, but then they they're part of that family. And you don't want to just stick him in a crate all the time. You know, oh, he's being scolded. You know, he's been bad dog. He's in the crate. Well, he doesn't know that. (laughs) So he doesn't know that he's doing something wrong. Oh, no, they don't do that. Now, if you catch him doing something, the tone of voice that you use, yes. Right away, they potty on the, if you see him pottying on the floor, no, outside. Mm -hmm. You know, hurry up, take him outside. The mess will still be there but take him outside. Let's go potty outside. They potty. Good dog. All right. Go outside. Potty outside. Bring him back in the house. Clean up the mess. If they've already messed, you can't rub their nose in it. They don't know that they've done that. It's almost like training kids then. Definitely. Definitely. When I was 24, I had a child and I had no clue of how to raise a baby. But as he grew, I found out I trained him like my dogs. I corrected him when he was wrong, and I praised him. Sean would go over to pick up something of mine. I said, no, no, that's mommy's. No touch. And, of course, he's going to try to touch it. So I say, no. And I brought my two little fingers out and kind of smacked his little hand, and he withdrew it. I go, good boy, don't touch. Mm -hmm. So I would then distract him to something else, you know, to get his attention. Tension away from that object again he would do it again and I go no don't touch it's mom's and he goes to do it so I gave him a little tap on the hand and I said no don't touch and he withdrew it and I go good boy don't touch and all of a sudden he understood that when mom said no don't touch and he wouldn't I would still praise him though and that's one thing that people forget They tell their dog to do something, and the dog does it. Say, maybe sit or down. They forget to say, well, good down. Good boy down. You have to follow through with that praise. Then all of a sudden, the dog understands so much better. Mm -hmm. To this day, if I tell my dogs off, which means off of me, because they love to come up and sit in my lap, Mm -hmm. and I say, okay, off. They get down. Good boys, get off. And... You can see it makes them happy, and they understand that they did a good job. And so that's what people have to remember on following through when you correct, which is just with your voice. That's a correction. Mm -hmm. You follow through with praise.
1: And eventually, I mean, they want to please you. Oh, yeah, definitely. They just don't have the skills. They don't know what you want. And I think sometimes there's an assumption that the dog should know that we want you know, whatever it is, want them to do a certain thing. But we haven't really followed through on all the training steps to get them to that goal.
2: Exactly. People skip the steps. People, you know, always would tell me, "Oh, well, my dog knows how to sit. And I said, well, tell, well, all right, show me. Tell him to sit. Well, sit, sit, sit. And about the sixth time, maybe the <laughs> dog sat. And I go, I'm sorry. If your dog knew how to sit, he would, say, he would do it the first time that's when your dog understands what sit means. Mm -hmm. And so you have to just repeat, repeat, repeat all the time. I mean, even as they get older, sometimes we have to go back and repeat, repeat. Because just the other day I was out field training. Uh, I haven't done field training for a while because of the winter. I'm a fair weather trainer. (laughs) And I had to go back and repeat some things from last year that they knew, but kind of we're rusty on this time of year. So, all right, go back to square one, repeat. Oh, boom, you see the light bulb come back on. Oh, I know what you want me to do now. And uh, that's what people forget. They have to go
1: back and repeat. Kind of like us, you know, like people, we have to go back and reteach ourselves some of those steps.
2: Oh, definitely. When I
1: get rusty, I need to do that. We're going to take a quick break from the Animal Academy podcast. We'll be right back.
0: make your podcast soar with the editor core. The one question
2: every podcaster needs to ask themselves is why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience.
0: Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with the editor core. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the EditorCore. Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works: magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique, perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors.
2: Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm,
1: your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com. See what difference can be made with a company that is
2: truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to the Animal Academy podcast. Tonight we're chatting with my longtime friend, traveling companion, and dog trainer extraordinaire, Pat Kasten. Pat, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Allison. So you mentioned field training in previous podcasts. We've talked about a lot about obedience and agility, and we talked, you know, about obedience this evening too. But what about field training? Could you tell the audience what that? What is field training?
2: Oh, field training just really is brings out a lot of the instincts of the dog. That's what they're bred to do. For retrievers, that is. Mm-hmm. Field training is going out and finding a bird. Say, if you hunt, you go out. Shoot your duck, dog goes out and retrieves it and brings it back. But you have to build that, you know, that training in. As a puppy, too, is first teaching them to hold, hold an object. Then you work to a duck, to hold a duck in your mouth without mouthing and dropping the duck. You have to teach them, there's a person out in the field that's going to be throwing this duck and to mark is called to mark that throw where that bird landed and you do it gradually at different distances until you can get up to maybe 200 yards or so and the dog will charge out there and use his instinct of his nose to smell where that bird's landed in that area and find it and then of course you've got to come back so you have a whistle call that you call you know, call them back into and you tweet your whistle, and they come back. So field training also, there's called a blind. It's a cold blind where somebody goes out and lays a duck in this one area, and they'll put like a little flag like on a limb of the tree or something where the duck is underneath or or maybe a stick out in the field where that duck is. But the dog didn't see it land there. And what you have to do is direct your dog back to that bird so I might get my dog by my side and I said there's a dead bird out there there's a dead bird and I said back and that tells him to go back and to try to find this bird well now of course he has no clue where he's going I've directed him in a straight line I told him to back so he knows from his previous training going back to a pile that we work as a pile that Back to an area, which teaches them to go straight. So he knows back means to run out straight. Well, he's going to veer off to the right or to the left, so you whistle. And he's learned from his previous training, earlier on, to whistle means to sit. A solid whistle means to sit. So he turns and sits facing me. And I'll direct him with casting with my right hand if I want him to go back to the right or casting up with my left hand to go back to the left, and I'll teach him go back. And so he's supposed to follow my direction. Say if I raise my right hand, he means, oh, that means turn to the right and go back to the right. And so I'll direct him back to that bird, and all of a sudden his nose picks up and he goes, bingo, got it, and comes back in. Well, there's, of course, three levels of field training. Just like obedience, there's three levels of obedience also. So there's your junior is like novice title in obedience. Your senior in field is like an open title in obedience. And then you have a master level, which is like your utility title in obedience. So it's three different levels that you can pass takes four to pass and on your master level it takes five passes to pass to get your master title
1: and that requires traveling all over the oh, place
2: over the place all over the place yes in st louis there's only for hunt tests there's only two hunt test clubs that offer that so you have to travel to different states
1: so for some of the retrievers <laughs> i know having golden retrievers I did enter my golden in the junior hunt test, and the marks were a lot longer than for a working certificate. Yes. So the working certificate is what I ended up getting with one of my golden retrievers. So that was just to basically show that they have instinct, correct?
2: Yes. Yes, it is. Correct.
1: It was still hard. Oh, it's still hard. I still had to go out there every weekend at yes. Bush Wildlife and all over the place to try to get this WC.
2: Yes, definitely. Which, you
1: know, it that I don't even know how many years ago that was. But I was so confident that my dog was going to pass. And he almost did. But all of a sudden, the rain hit. And we were in close to Chicago, Illinois. He passed the Land Series. So I thought, all right, he's got it. Shorter watermarks, they're singles. And so I sent him out. And he got the first bird brought it back and I'm like all right so we got the second bird I sent him and this was Dylan by the way Uh (laughs) I sent him and the judge was even so excited because he said we've got this he had trouble finding the second bird the the rain was coming down even um, harder and he brought back a water lily
2: oh no that was heartbreaking yes it is heartbreaking especially when you get to their last bird
1: I just stared at him But he brought something back. So you have to just like swallow your emotions. That's right. They did the best they could do at that time. Exactly. And that was a long drive home.
2: Yes, I've had many long drives home. But, you know, I still love my dog just Mm -hmm. the same. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Really, that's that's a good segue into we do these things because we really, truly care about our dogs. I loved watching my dogs use their instinct, doing something they were bred to do. But it was more process, not perfection. We do care about perfection in a lot of the trials, but it's more the training, it's the camaraderie, it's doing something with our dogs, or we wouldn't continue to do it.
2: Yes, definitely. Uh, There's nothing like just getting out in the wide open field and working with that dog and seeing them respond. And if they don't, I help them out. Some dogs... Need a little bit more help than others? Or you say, well, it's back to the training again. (laughs) But just seeing them turn that light bulb on and just like, oh, I got it. And it just thrills me just to see these dogs. Because, I mean, when my dog gets a bird, oh, my gosh, he kind of jumps up. And just runs as fast back to me, and he'll come back into the heel position, which is on my left side. And he kind of goes, rrr, rrr, rrr. and he says, I'm so happy. Look what I got, Mom. And I just beam. And, of course, then the judges laugh about that because they, it's cute, you know, because mm-hmm. he's like, look what I got. Look mm-hmm. what I got. I got it, you know. And since soon as I tell him out, he releases bird he is like on it again he's looking for that next bird and i've had a lot of judges golden retrievers sometimes out in the fields a lot of your judges go oh here comes a little swamp collie or whatever because they're (laughs) used to labs running Mm -hmm. well once i released my dog they go oh my gosh You've got a power horse. I mean, he bolted through all these duck decoys, and they were flying left and right. He didn't stop a lick. I mean, he nailed the bird, came back, and they going, whoa. And I go, hmm, yeah, Goldens mm-hmm. can do
1: it, too, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen a, a standard-sized poodle run a hunt test.
2: Oh, my gosh, yes. I've seen some wonderful poodles run. Unfortunately, their Poodle National was going to be held here in April, and oh no! And of course, that's gotten canceled. But they held it here last year, and I went over and watched. And there, they have some really good, mm-hmm. nice poodles. They can do. Ju- that's what they were bred for, too. Mm-hmm.
1: I had no idea yeah. until I saw that poodle run. Yeah, he did yeah. a great job. So, besides dogs, you've had horses.
2: Oh yes. Oh. So yes. when
1: did that start?
2: Oh. I was probably 12. She wasn't basically my horse. I had friends that were twins. Uh, we were like sisters, and they had three horses. So one became mine. Scooter was a retired racehorse, and we taught her. I taught her how to do barrel racing and pole bending and speed events. And all three of us showed our horses. They had Appaloosas, and I had a quarter. hmm Yeah, I started there, and when we moved to St. Louis, my first job, I bought with my first paycheck a horse. Wow. (laughs) Yes, and I went to a Tennessee Walker at that time because my knees had given out from riding quarter horses and um, doing stupid things as green-breaking horses as I got a little older. And being thrown so many times and getting back up again, and the old knees just couldn't handle the jolting of the quarter horse. So um, a friend of mine that I worked with said, oh, you'll have to come out and ride with me. And I said, I won't be able to ride for very long because my knees. She goes, oh, yes, you will. They have a Tennessee walker out there that Don, that owned the place, had. And after I went out on a trail ride for three hours and came back and got off the horse, I told him, find me one. (laughs) (laughs) So my first paycheck was to a horse.
1: And then you've had several horses since.
2: Yes, I've had another Tennessee walker. Uh, My first one I competed in horse shows with, uh, walking horse shows. My second one was just my pleasure horse that I went trail riding with and everything.
1: So comparing horses and dogs, do you train them differently?
2: Nope. Not at all. Really? I show, I treat, I praise. Correction is more with your voice with them or like using the reins, you know, wanting to go different ways. But horses, I had my horse trained that bow, he bowed with a treat. He would give me hugs. He'd wrap his neck around my, his. I'd stand by his side, and he'd bring his neck around and just hug me. He'd give kisses on command. Really? Oh yes, yes. So I mean, I trained him just like a dog. You know, I used. He loved peppermint candies. He loved carrots and he always knew I had carrots in my pocket. <laughs> and so uh every time I'd come down to the barn or he'd be out in the pasture, I'd call for him and he'd come running. And there's a couple of times I kept thinking, Oh, I'm gonna get run over <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he would stop real fast and then hit my back pocket. It's like, Give <laughs> me that treat. <laughs>
1: I went to this uh, retreat center years ago and participated in this equine experience. That's what they called it, Mm -hmm. where we had to try to get horses to do things without touching them. So it was the most amazing experience because I had to try to be that horse's leader to then get him to bond with me. Mm -hmm. But first of all, we were put out in the pasture with the horses and we had to try to find our horse that we were going to work with that day i'm like well how do you do that so they said we'll find the one that connects with you yes yes. and i was amazed that this one female named annie connected with me and the rancher said that is the one that you're going to be working with she chose you so we did a series of exercises where i brushed her and I talked to her and gave her treats, and she started following me. And then we went into the round pen and did some exercises. But it was all—it very interesting because it was my body language that really got this horse to do certain things.
2: Yes, definitely. How does that work? Oh, they sense the calmness. If you're calm, um, I would sit for hours just in the stall with my new horse. I would just stand there and talk to him and just pet him and look him in the eyes and just talk and connect. You know, I would maybe pet his ear and go down his body and go down the tail, just just gradually working my ways down. Like a massage. Just like a massage and going down his leg and picking up his hoof and putting it down and telling him he's a good boy. And I would go up and just talk to his face, just look him in the eyes and just talk to him and just pet him and he started nuzzling when I would go down to the side of him, he would turn his head and watch me and I'd talk to him and look at him. And he became calm then, and I was calm. And I got to where I could sit underneath him and he wouldn't even move. I would rub his belly, I would, you know, massage his legs. I could get out, I could crawl underneath him. Um, We just built a bond and a trust. I could do anything with his tail. I could, you know, I always put my hand on their rear, you know, when I would be in behind him in back and put his my hand on his rear. So he says, okay, it's mom, and I know she's not going to hurt me because horses sometimes do kick out, you know. Of course, they have flies or what have you, and they thump their legs or what have you. But I'd always put my hand on his leg and kind of run it down, his leg and everything and said it's me buddy know, oh, and I'd be working on the hoof or something like that but I, I never would ever like do anything quick you don't want to do anything quick around horses but horses will sense that when you just stand there and you're calm yes going out into a field horses will pick that even cows I you know lived on a farm for a while and if I would stood real still and just talked to the cows all of a sudden one would come up And I would stand real quiet and just very, just slowly bring out my hand. All of a sudden, this cow's coming up and smelling my hand, and I just kind of move it a little bit. Eventually, I'm petting this cow that nobody's Mm -hmm. ever touched before, Mm -hmm. but they can sense that I'm not afraid, that I'm not going to hurt them. I have the calmness about yourself, and they just they do bond with you.
1: So I had this experience with a horse. I was doing the same kind of thing with a friend's horse. I was, you know, petting the horse. And she lived, uh, she had a farm, but there was a road. And occasionally a car would go by. But I didn't know that. So I saw a car going by, and I immediately jerked my head to the side to look at the car because it scared me Mm -hmm. because i didn't i wasn't expecting a car and the horse all of a sudden did the same thing and so the owner of the horse said that horse did it based on my reaction because that horse is used to hearing all kinds of sounds right
2: right. so i thought that
1: was amazing (laughs) that the horse really was basing her kind of quick reaction on me
2: yes definitely definitely yeah, they it's like, oh, you're looking that way. I better too. There's something yeah. she's checking out. I better too. Right, and that's kind of their instincts. Like something shocked you, and they're going to look also. It's hmm. like, what is that that scared you? Because I might be scared too.
1: <laughs> so you really have to learn the horse language. Yes, you do. And dogs have the same type of language. They really do. So even when dogs put their ears back, it means something. Or definitely, when they're panting, it means another thing. Yes definitely.
2: I had a dog respond by putting, I was out for a walk and all of a sudden I noticed my dog's ears were pinned back. I thought, what the heck? There's nothing around here. All of a sudden he just turned and ran behind me. Thank God I was on, he was on leash. Teeth bared, hackles up, just, I mean, think I was holding on with all my might. Somebody had come out between the houses mm. and He didn't like it. And the person took off running. Mm -hmm. To me, that told me this dog may have saved my life. Mm -hmm. He sensed there was something wrong. I mean, Mm -hmm. so you you see that. Horses put their ears back because they're listening. So when my horse would put his ears back, I would start to look around. Okay, what is it that you're listening for? Mm -hmm. There's something coming up. Mm -hmm. Mine could sense a motorcycle miles away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he'd put his ears back, and I learned to read his language. When he'd pin his ears back real tight, I knew a motorcycle was coming up.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And so I would be prepared, because motorcycles sometimes come too close to horses and stuff. What he went through before I had him, Mm -hmm. I have no idea. He didn't like the sound of motorcycles, so we would just get off the road out into the pasture or something like that, so...
1: Well, I'm still trying to figure out how dogs can sense that it's their dinner time because it doesn't matter if it's daylight savings time. It doesn't matter if it's a weekend or during the the week. They know when they want to eat.
2: I think they just have an internal clock. They must. I'll tell you because mine do the same, and especially when the time changes, it's like, no, guys, I need another hour of sleep. And they go, no, you don't. It's time to get up.
1: I still can't figure that out. Yeah. Another thing that you do, Pat, is you're an American Kennel Club obedience and a rally judge. So are you still traveling quite a bit? No,
2: I've kind of stopped my traveling that much. Airlines, just I'm sitting on the ground more than I am in the air Mm -hmm. and sitting in the terminals. I am just an obedience judge, though. I don't do the rally. You don't do rally? I don't do the rally. We could have gotten grandfathered in years ago, but I opt not to. Okay. Obedience, I love to judge obedience, and I do local shows and anywhere I can drive within five hours or six hours drive. But the airline travel, I do have one coming up next year in Washington. They're kind of my family up there. Mm -hmm. I go there every other year since 96 it's been. Wow. So they're like family, and I stay with a couple there. And they're just, like I said, they're my extended family. So what do you enjoy about judging? I love the teamwork. Watching the teamwork between the handler and the dog, it's it's amazing. The teamwork, and I mean, not everybody's going to have. I mean, two hundred's a perfect score, and not everybody's going to have dogs that, and well, you're judged with your handling and your dog. So it's not just the dog being judged; it's you also. Um, not everybody's going to have a like a. 190 whatever working dog, 170 is passing if you pass more than half of each exercise. 200 is a perfect score. And I love just seeing people in there working with their dog, uh, going through the exercises, being a team. Sometimes the team player, the dog, doesn't Mm -hmm. want to do everything Mm -hmm. that he's supposed to. And you see how the person handles that also. It's just people having fun with their dog and doing what they love to do. And I, I enjoy that, and I enjoy helping the people because I always say after I get done judging, if anybody has any questions, please come ask, you know. And some will ask, oh, what did my dog do? Or what, did, you know, and it's like, well, the dog didn't do anything on that exercise. May You did. <laughs> like for a stand stay, they may not have left in heel position. So that's scoreable mm-hmm. for the handler. I love the companionship, watching that, and the joy that people get out of that. And uh, sometimes it's not so joyous when the dog runs around the ring and acts (laughs) crazy. But it's like I always say, hey, there's tomorrow, or there's the next show. I said, good luck, you know, for your next time. Today maybe wasn't it, but tomorrow will be.
1: People work really, really hard on training to compete with their dogs, we talked in a previous episode about how hard it is to recognize that maybe this isn't the sport for your dog. Maybe your dog would rather do dock diving, you know, or something else because obedience isn't for everybody.
2: No, it's not. I had a dog, loved novice, did fine in open, when it came to you know, I would always try to train all the all the levels first, but he he acted like I beat him when I asked him to stand in utility with a signal and stuff. And, you know, and I'd praise him. I'd do everything. I, he just did not like utility work at all. And I said, okay, buddy, we don't have to do utility work. And that's where I kind of first got into field training because hmm. he kind of enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't have to do something You know, just because I'm in obedience doesn't mean I have to finish every level. Uh, Mm -hmm. My dog's not really enjoying it, and they really don't, I mean, you can tell when a dog enjoys things and stuff. And some things, they just don't enjoy in obedience. So agility might be another avenue, or rally might be another avenue, or just going out into the field, do field work with Mm -hmm. your dog if they're a retriever. Or there's pointing breeds also that Mm -hmm. have. Field work, but I'm not going to beat myself up and I'm not going to beat my dog up because my, they're my best friends.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I just figure, okay, if it's not for you, you can be a house dog. That's fine. We'll mm-hmm. go for our walks, we'll play out in the yard, and I'll still love you just as much.
1: Because they're a family member first. They are a
2: family member first, yes.
1: So kind of going back to what we talked about with kids before is that each child in your family has a different personality, has a different temperament. It's more important to find out what the kid wants to do, what the child is good at. Exactly. Same with uh, dogs or any animal.
2: definitely. I'm not going to push. My my son was a goalie, a nice goalie. You know, I'm not going to push my son to be a goalie, you know. But kind of want to help him along, maybe. (laughs) But if he doesn't like it, hey, there's many other avenues. And if he doesn't want to play sports, he doesn't have to play Mm -hmm. sports. You know, I mean, everybody to their own likings. And that's the way it is with the dogs. If a person tries it and they're not connecting with their dog and they're just too frustrated, why do it? Mm -hmm. The main part of it is being the alpha, being the top in control. Mm -hmm. And the bond then that you create with your dog is just astonishing. Mm -hmm. It's just wonderful. It's the best gift God could give us Mm -hmm. because they're unconditional love, and they'll give that to you with respect, Mm -hmm. you know, that they respect you. You have to be that alpha. So you don't have Mm -hmm. to do any type of dog sports or horse sports or animal sports or whatever you're into. It's just creating – that you're the alpha and that bond between you that brings that love and joy.
1: And that's the important thing is they're part of your family. They're there to love and be a part of your life.
2: definitely, definitely.
1: Well, Pat, I've really enjoyed talking to you tonight. Do you have any lessons or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience?
2: Train, 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 repeat, repeat, repeat. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I really want everybody to understand is, no matter what, you're the one in the wrong. If your dog has done something, it's eating the sock or your shoe or this and that, it's not their fault, it's your fault for not picking it up and putting it away. You're going to be mad, oh, my dog knows when he's done something wrong. Well, if you come in and say, look what you did, you bad dog, he'd be wagging his tail. He's gonna have his tail tucked between his leg because you come in and you go, oh my gosh, it's the tone that you use. And so just remember to build that bond with your dog, to have that respect from your dog, to be the alpha. You don't have to beat your dog or anything. It's just repeat your lessons over and over again and praise them. You know, correct and praise. That's what it is. And hopefully you'll then have a happy
1: life ever after. Well, thank you so much, Pat.
2: Thanks for having me, Allison. Yes. It was fun. It
1: was a blast tonight. I appreciate you being here.
2: Yes, a lot of memories, too, that we brought up. That's it right. Was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you having me.
1: Well, thanks so much. Thank you. As you can tell from this episode and from listening to previous podcasts, these guests all share several things in common. Their love for animals, the connection they feel by spending time doing activities with them and how there's a natural bond established between those who share common passions and goals. Even if you don't plan on actively showing your pets in competition, there are ways to train your pet so you can live together peacefully and enjoy having them as a part of your family. There's a wide variety of activities you can do with your pets, and the time spent will increase the bond and connection you share. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. And please stay tuned as we continue to share stories and resources that focus on the human-animal connection. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.